Hey guys, and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. The first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. And it has been ugly lately, but we know, we know, we know that good is coming. It's right around the corner. Exciting time of the year. But we're ready for it to get here, ready for these calls to start coming in with some good reports of people catching fish again. And uh, so we are looking forward to the show today. I got Norman Latona on here with me today. Norman, how you doing, buddy? I'm oh, doing great. What a beautiful day. Golly, right? We have been blessed with some insanely good weather here the last couple of days, that's for sure. You been able to get out any, do a little hunting? You know, a little bit, and the deer have been moving around great. We've actually had a little good fortune on our place down in Bullock County. Bucks moving around, you know, that early, early bow season stuff going off. Yeah, just a little bit. Kids have been having a ball chasing them around. So, uh, yeah, it's been good. Man, that's what it's all about right there. Well, I'm, uh, I'll be waiting on my invite to come down and go with you, brother. Hey, you know any time, buddy. <laughs> you know better than I ask me. I'll show up. So that's the problem. Come on. <laughs> but you got to bring a truckload of all these kids I got, man. We'll just we'll eat you. Uh, your food down there. I know you did. It's a terrible situation. I promise you, you will not. That's one thing about our camp. You will not go hungry. I don't know about how many deer you'll see, but I promise you won't go hungry. Without the food. Well, Norma, we are going to have, uh, we are going to get to uh, appreciate you jumping on here and, and kind of co-hosting with me today. We are also going to do your a segment with you here in a little while and and talk about lime and fertilizing and kind of do our our management minute segment. But before we get to that, we got Chris Jackson on here and uh, we want a fishing report. I mean, this fishing report show. Chris, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? Doing great, doing great, brother. How are you? Doing good, man. Yeah, well, like Norman was just saying, I wish I was enjoying the the, the weather outside and fishing or, or hunting a little bit more than I am right now. I feel like I'm missing a lot of good opportunity, but it, it's still just man, it's so enjoyable right now. It, it's been crazy. Fishing's been crazy. The hunting's been kind of weird. Everything's been nuts in Alabama. Yeah, no doubt, man. It's back and forth. You've been able to get in the tree stand a little bit? I, I have a couple of times. I've sat out a couple of times. And just I, I guess I'm just letting the deer kind of get comfortable to sitting around. And I've got a couple of guys in my place that hunt almost every day. I'm letting them kind of push their deer towards me, to be honest with you. Yeah. What county are you in? I'm actually right in the corner of Bibb and Pickens County and Chilton, right in the very corner of it. Okay. Yeah, I got you, man. Well, that's a good area. We've really started a management program that's kind of helped and a feeding program that's really helped. And it's about the third year, so we're starting to see better rats and better nutrition in the deer. The does are getting bigger. But, you know, this time of year, it's a battle between if I'm going to hunt or I'm going to fish that day. Well, hey, Norman, it's always about that nutrition, isn't it? It's about the, uh, if you put the grokers in them, they grow. No doubt about it. We actually harvested a buck. I guess it was Friday. Is it Friday or Saturday night? At least the largest, the heaviest deer we've ever killed on the place. It was a mature deer, probably four and a half, may, may have been five and a half, but he was almost 220 pounds. And, wow. And where we are, I mean, that's a, it's a giant deer. I mean, he, he was a horse. 
just fat. Kind of like what Chris said, we have worked hard the last two, three, four years to keep them fed and keep them in warm weather for it. That's that's the key to it, I think, really, keeping them in good high-protein forage in the summertime. You know, everybody plants in the fall, but we're seeing healthy deer, just like fish. You're right. They they have to have groceries to grow. No doubt about that. Well, Chris, man, where have you been fishing lately? Um, I've had several trips on Gunnersville, a couple of trips on Neely Henry, one trip on Load to Martin, and the rest of them have all been on Smith Lake. Gunnersville has been basically like a roulette wheel. One day you go out and you smash two, two and a half, three pounders and you can catch 25, 30 of them. And then one day you go in and you can't buy two fish all day. I mean, it's, you have to struggle. It, you know, one day they hit it, they'll, they're choking swim baits. The next day you got to throw a Senko. The weather has just gone up and down and up and down and the barometric pressure is up and down. That affects their swim bladder and affects their activity. And we're starting to see a whole lot of shad starting to show up in the pockets and that's helping a lot. That's helping. It's helping the fish grow it and helping them eat and showing the action. You know, it's like I tell my clients though, it's real hard to compete with God. When they got three and a half inch shad that they're eating and they're eating thousands of them at a time, and then you put a fluke in there, they, of course, know it's a fluke. They know it's not the shad they've been eating on for the last two and a half hours. So it's, it's harder to catch them. But once you can, you can get them in that frenzy and fire them up, then it's a lot easier. That's the truth. Well, what about on, on Gunnersville? You know, everybody gets excited in the fall about, about the frog bite. And we had a report a couple weeks ago. You know, we had a cool snap, and then it warmed up, then it got cool again. Just kind of been back and forth. And that first cool snap came through. We had some people saying, hey, it's, it's turning on. It's going to happen. Oh, it, it did. When the water temperature dropped a little bit, it really got better. Ten years ago, we were catching fish on that in June and July and August. And the hotter and the nastier it was, the better. And the more miserable, actually, on the clients, the better it was fishing-wise and catching-wise. But in the last four or five, six years, it's been later and later and later. In fact, I've got several clients. That's all they want to do is throw frogs on top of mat. And I've pushed them back from when they first started coming in, say, July and August. And I've pushed them all the way back in now into November, October, November. This year, actually, they're coming in two weeks. The water level's changing constantly. That That has a lot to do with it. The winds that we've had over the last couple of weeks have had a lot to do with it. It's either broke mats up or it completely moved them. And two, the wind blowing across the top of those mats makes a big difference because the fish don't actually, the bass can actually hear those fish on top of the, the mat struggling to get back in. So it, that causes, you know, the bite to slow down some. So you pretty much have to punch it and flip it. Basically change tack. The biggest thing, the best way to be successful right now on Gunnersville is, is to be completely open-minded every day that you go. The day you caught them on swim baits moving fast or on top water, you have to forget about that if you did that on Monday when you go back on Tuesday because Tuesday is completely going to be different. That's just kind of the pattern we're in for the next little while until this thing stables out a little bit, I imagine. I agree. It, it should have stabled out already, but it, I, they're calling next week for, for mid-70s weather again. So we had this cold snap this last week. It's been great, but cold front pushing in. But now it's, a, it's about to go back to warm again. So I, I think the fish are just kind of in a funk. They don't know which way to go. 
they get out and they start moving to the back of the pockets like they're supposed to in those creek channels. And then all of a sudden they stop, turn around and go back out towards the ledge again. I moved the boat a lot, a whole lot. I start, I start off on the edges of the creek mouths and I will start working my way back until I get bit basically. And then once you find that pattern, you can stick to it all day long, pretty much anywhere on the lake. So if you're catching, yeah, whatever pattern you start getting some success on, just stay with that one and it'll be, you can stay with it all day. Pretty much. It takes about an hour. Mayors are pretty much any of the other guys in the lake, I'm sure, are having the same deal with the same thing. Is I'll start where I, basically where I caught them the day before, and then I have to adjust. At this time of year, I pick up a rod more than I ever pick one up. Normally, I don't, I don't even put a rod on the, my deck that I use. What I'll do is I'll, I'll have them start off throwing, say, a soft swim bait, throwing it just over the top of the edge of the grass. And I'll pick something up like a weightless fluke, and I'll just throw it and just toss it out and let it fall to the bottom. If I get bit, I change their bait, and then they catch fish the rest of the day. Trying to do something different, figure out something. Plus, you know, there is still some pressure on the lake, so you're having to, to be a little bit different than the guy that's sitting 75 yards in front of you. Right. Well, Norman, I want to bring you in on something. He mentioned, uh, Chris, you mentioned barometric pressure. Can you give some insight on how barometric pressure affects fish? Well, not really definitive answers to that, and there's certainly exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, you know, higher pressure, rising barometric pressure, you tend to, to struggle a little more to get fish to bite, and the opposite true when you got falling barometric pressure, low pressure. Why that is, honestly, you, you, your guess is as good as mine. I, I think there are some clues, there's some obvious things. Typically, when we have rising barometric pressure you can feel it in the air bluebird skies bright sun certainly fish and other animals for that matter are even more sensitive to environmental changes than we are we can feel it they sure as that can when it comes to fish bass in particular they're ambush predators they'll certainly take advantage of sight feeding and clear water and they'll use sound to feed but bass are ambush predators they like to, and that's kind of why they're colored and splotchy colored the way they are. They're camo. They're really made to hide, and that's what instinctively they do. And so, you know, when you get bright spotlight in the form of the sun beaming down in relatively clear water, I mean, that shallow water fishing sometimes can be awfully tough. And for that matter, even open water fishing. And like I said, there's certainly exceptions to the rule, as Chris alluded to, you get them fired up and get them out on schools of shad and feeding in a feeding frenzy. I mean, you catch them doing that in a wide variety of conditions. But I think generally, when you have high pressure, certainly when you have bluebird skies, bright, bright sunshine, the bass tend to be a little more wary, a little less apt to chase. They sort of revert to, I need to find me a place to hide, hunker down and wait for something to in front of me. That's my take on it anyway. And there's still a lot to be learned out there about the impact of things like barometric pressure on fish and, and particularly on fishing tangling, what makes a bite, what makes a not. Chris, what's your insight on that? What's your history with it? Have you, is that something that you pay attention to when you're on the lake? I mean, are you checking the pressure before you go while you're on the water? I mean, how does it affect the way that you fish? I do. I, I get pretty scientific with it. I, you know, I'm by no means a scientist and I've studied it a lot. And I study it more on Gunnersville and lakes like in Florida. You know, they're typically shallow grass lakes. You'll notice 
when I fish the opens and we go to say South Florida and you usually will have a front come through those fronts will throw fishing off completely for about 24 hours and I finally I, I got to sit down with a guy that's actually a biologist that studies them and I'm saying there's a lot of exceptions to the rules of course but at the same time generally these he explained to me one reason that a lot of fish shut down uh, when the pressure gets high and the old saying of the best day of fishing is the worst day to catch it really shows true you know those bright bluebird skies with no clouds usually means it's the backside of a front and, and he said the way that a lot of bass react is that they don't feed out of hunger but a very small percentage of their life the rest of it is usually reaction which is why i say anglers like kevin van dam are so good they reaction fish constantly versus just sitting and ambushing something out of hunger a lot of times it's food of opportunity i guess is a good way to put it or a target of opportunity and if it's there and it's right in front of their face and it looks like it's not paying any attention they'll eat it that's one reason bluebird skies slow down throw something that's real not got a lot of vibration and you almost have to hit them in the nose with it you hear that term a lot but he told me the reason for that for the pressure when the beverage pressure goes up it changes their ability to stay in their normal position in the water because their swim bladder expands and it's basically he said if i kind of made it into like a human it's the equivalent to having a stomach ache and an earache at the same time your equilibrium's thrown off your stomach feels full so the bass will actually shut down and they will nose up into cover where they know they're protected because there's a three pound bass and a three pound bass is good but he knows there's a five pound bass that wants to eat it so he's going to try to stay in that cover where he feels secure and basically wait till his swim bladder goes back to normal so he's, he's not having to fight to stay in that lateral position in the water and constantly keep himself moving. It's one of those, that's why they say, if you'll go and watch, if you, anybody has a, the opportunity, especially on a pond, when the barometric pressure goes up, if you stand on a pier and you have a fish that stays around that pier much, those fish will actually nose up against that pier as opposed to sitting beside the pylon. They'll stick their nose right up against it. And that's one reason it's hard to catch them in grass because they just dive down in the grass and they just lay there dormant. And you have to basically hit them in the face with it because they're not swimming around looking for food. They're actually just trying to feel better and get more active. That's interesting about the pressure and the impact on the swim bladder and their equilibrium. And that certainly makes a lot of sense, Chris. And, and, I, and I'll say this too, I certainly concur with bass being opportunistic feeders. I mean, they're not they're not warm-blooded animals. There's a big difference between a warm-blooded animal and a cold-blooded animal. And, and in terms of their need to feed, cold-blooded animals, particularly when the ambient temperature drops, their metabolism slows, and, and they just don't need to feed. We get this question a lot. Well, my pond, you tell me my pond is bass crowded. I got way too many bass. Well, well why am I having trouble catching fish? And the truth is, what these fish do, being opportunistic, they're, they're sensitive to the availability of forage. Instinctively, they know if there's a lot of food, then, then let's go eat. If there's a limited amount of food, then we're not going to waste energy 
swimming around trying to find it. We're going to just conserve energy. We're going to hunker down in one spot and wait for something to swim in front of us. And again, that's the most efficient way to survive. But I will say this too. What I think impacts fish biting as much as anything, Chris, I'd be curious what your comments are. But to me, what impacts them more than anything is, is change. Sud, particularly sudden change. Whether that's a sudden change in water level, in the barometric pressure, in the color of the water, the amount of turbidity in the water. And, and a good example of that, the last 30 years I've spent trying to dispel a myth that fertilizing a pond causes fish to quit biting. You know, I've heard people told me, you know, it burns them, it burns their eyes, and they're not going to bite right after you fertilize for a variety of reasons. And really, there's no evidence to support that. But what I will say is this, typically right after you fertilize a pond, you get a response from plankton. So you go from, say, 24 or 28 or 30 inches of visibility down to 16 inches or 12 inches in a matter of a few days. Well, that's a sudden change. So once things stabilize for a period of time, whether it's high barometric pressure, low barometric pressure, high visibility, low visibility, high water, low water, I think once they stabilize, the fish get back into that routine and they're a little easier to, to entice them to bite. That That's my experience with it. And I think that's why people say, hey, they shut down after you fertilize. I'm curious what your take on that is, Chris. I totally agree. The change is what does it. You know, a lot of people talk about, well, it was 75 degrees yesterday, and now it's 35 degrees. Well, look at the water temperature. They're not outside. They don't know that it's 75 degrees outside, and it dropped 40 degrees over the day. The water temperature is what they pay attention to, because that's where they live. It could be 40 degrees tomorrow after it's 75 here today. It's not going to affect the water temperature that much in a day, but sunlight will, so they can see that sunlight. So that changed people, especially tournament fishing. Everybody goes, man, I caught the snot out of them on Wednesday. I don't know why I can't catch them here on Saturday. I guess they know a tournament's going on. They probably do because there's 9,000 boats on the water on Saturday and there was only 2,000 boats there on Wednesday and boats they cause a lot of wakes to get shallow water. It's like I tell people that are clients that are coming to tournament fish at, say, Neely, Henry, Logan, Martin in the spring, late spring, after the fish have started to come off of bed and they're moving towards, they're going to stay on the bank, but they're staying there to feed, that the bite will generally die after about 9, 30, 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning in that shallow water. And it's because the fish are, not in the shallow water, they have to pull out because they're having to stay stable in a washing machine. Boat wakes, slamming up against seawalls. It comes in, hits the seawall, turns around and goes right back out. Well, that's current. It's going opposite of the way that the normal current's going, and it causes change. And when that change happens, they, for lack of a better term, pull out to their safe place, and they hang out until it stabilizes again, and they go right back, which is usually a late afternoon bite. Most people are off the water, say, 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That wake quits hitting those seawalls. They move back up to the seawalls and feed again. I know it sounds kind of a, like a weird way to put it, but that's pretty much, that's generally what I see a lot of times. And it, and it makes, I guess, the best common sense part of it. I'm sure there's a, a much more scientific way to put it. 
but you're exactly right. That sudden change freaks them out. They go back to where they feel more comfortable. And then once that stabilizes, then they go back to their normal way of, of doing things. Just like the power goes out in your house, you instantly go figure out where you need to get the candles and, and you kind of hunker down. Power comes back on. You go back to your normal way of living. So I think that's a great way to put it. I think you know, fish do the exact same thing. Bass in particular, and, and a lot of fish, but but bass in particular are are incredibly adaptive to a really wide range of conditions. And if you think about it, uh, again, we have folks ask us all the time, "What depth the bass spawn in?" And, and for that matter, bluegill in a pond. What what depths are these fish going to spawn in? They certainly have preferred areas and substrates and things that they like to spawn on, but Listen, these fish are so so adaptive. I mean, they can live in a mud hole where they got two inches of visibility, if if that, or they can live in crystal clear water where they can see six feet, and they can spawn in foot of water on a on a stump, or they can spawn in in eight or ten feet of water. So there was actually a, and this is sort of anecdotal, but really remarkable. There's an eye flute that is common, and I'm showing how long it's been since, since I was in parasitology of disease, but. I can't call the name of it, but it's a, uh, it's basically a worm that gets behind the eye, particularly in bluegill. And it'll kind of run through a bluegill population. And, you, and you'll see a lot of, a lot of these fish will ultimately lose their vision. Just this worm kind of wraps around the eye and eventually it'll cause them to go blind. And so on occasion, you'll run into this in a pond and these bluegill that are blind, they feed and reproduce and avoid predation and et cetera, apparently without compromise. It's just remarkable how they adapt from being able to use their eyes to feed and avoid predation and reproduce and do all the things that they do. And suddenly they don't have eyes, they don't have vision anymore, it's not an option, and they just adjust to it. Bass are certainly the same way. Give them enough time and they're going to figure out a way to live in whatever conditions they're in. But if you change it overnight on them, I think it makes them kind of shut it down for a minute. Like Chris was saying, now, let me hunker down next to this piling and just chill out for a minute. <laughs> but let's see what, where this thing's going. Is the water going up or down? Is it going to quit moving? Is it going to get clear up, et cetera, et cetera? You know? That woman, I mean, uh, I do swim in ponds from time to time. I mean, this, this, this worm that'll get in my eye and I ain't got to worry about this, do <laughs> no, as far as I know, it doesn't. Uh, yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff swimming around in those ponds for sure. But if you ever catch a brim that it almost looks like their eye is popping out of the socket, that worm will actually wrap around, like I said, and grow and, and put pressure on the eye, and it'll it'll actually choke it out. And I'll have to get back with you and, and give you the name of that thing. I can see one. They're red eye worms, eye flukes, but I can't I can't call the name of them. Very good stuff. Well, all right, we talked about Gunnersville a little bit. What's going on there? Let's just touch on some of the other lakes. You've been fishing, uh, sounds like a good bit lately. What about Neely Henry? Neely Henry's doing good. The water levels are changing a little bit, which is moving the fish out off of the seawalls a little. But the fishing's getting better and better. The crappie are starting to really eat. I do not really crappie fish a whole lot, but I'm catching some while I'm bass fishing, uh, especially on docks. Focusing on those docks that have deeper water on the end of them has been real productive. Those shallow water pockets are good, but you got to fish in the creek channel. But once the sun comes up good, those fish are moving out. Neely Henry's a typical Coosa River lake. doesn't have a whole lot of grass in it. 
uh, until you get towards the bottom end of the Coosa River chain. Neely Henry and, and Logan Martin both have been productive, but as the sun comes up, get on those deeper docks that have, you know, six, eight, ten feet of water up under them and, and drop off into, say, 12, 18 feet of water. That's been the predominant way that we've caught them. Uh, catch them on top water early, strictly nothing but a reaction bite where they're feeding on shad. And then the bigger fish, once the sun comes up, say, 8, 9 o'clock in the morning, I, I tie on a jig, go straight to docks, and then we fish docks the rest of the trip. You're going to not get as many bites, but the bites you get are a lot better quality. Four and five pounders are sitting, you know, on the tip edges of those docks, and they're usually hiding from a little bit of current. Um, they're not running as much current now on the Coosa as they have been. But one thing a lot of people need to keep in mind is there's always current flowing on the Coosa River, even if they're not running turbines. There's some type of current, just like the Tennessee River, constantly flowing through it a little bit. Some are greater than others, but, but that's been a big thing. It's positioning on the dock is what the current's doing. The current's blowing through for some reason. Then you need to position yourself in those current breaks where those fish are going to sit and pretty much ambush anything that floats by. Versus if it's not running a whole lot, if it's just trickling, then they'll they'll position yourself on the front side of the current break where they're a little bit more apt to be able to, to catch something going by. What about Smith? Smith is off the chain. There's no other way to put it. Um, the blueback herring are spooled up right now, and they are running for their lives away from all the stripe. This time of year, the stripe just really fire up. And of course, that's, that's their main thing for them to eat. So bluebacks are running. And when they start running up into those pockets to get away from those bigger stripes that are just basically too big to get up in that shallow water. But we're catching a lot of fish in open water. And it's weird because really hard for me to get clients to understand that you can catch a fish in top water in 65 feet of water. Uh, the fish will actually suspend which makes them difficult to catch, and you know, unless they're using certain styles and tactics of fishing. Then the top water, if you can get one or two of them to come up to feed on shad, then the whole school's coming with them, and you can catch 20 fish in 15 minutes and then not get another bite for 45 minutes. 60 foot of water. You know, yeah, uh, yeah, sitting in, but see now that Smith Lake is a lot like Lake Martin. It's super clear, super duper clear. It's like fishing in a swimming pool. You know, we were talking about, you know, how deep fish will actually spawn. I've seen spotted bass spawn on Smith Lake in 25 feet of water. As long as they can get some sunlight, they're good. And generally, you know, those fish will suspend in 25, 30 feet of water on the side of a hump. You actually, instead of fishing the hump, you sit on top of the hump and throw out and bring your bait towards the hump, which is actually the direction that shad move typically they move from deep water to shallow water to get away from fish and that's usually what fires that school up and when you can do that and you make a, a good pass around the hump you know you sit in six feet and throw into a hundred um because it it drops dramatically i learned that little tactic in tennessee fishing the open once i figured it out i brought the same tactic here and it's it's really been productive you know when you can get those fish to come up once you get them up there, they're up, and they'll stay 10, 15 minutes. And it's a constant just catch, catch, catch over and over, and then all of a sudden they just go back down. because I don't know if they get full or if they just shut down from swimming. They're literally coming from anywhere between 30 to 40 feet of water like a bullet. 
you know, and they're swimming. I think they just get tired. And then once they get relaxed again, then you can fire them back up. That's been a key on Smith Lake. A lot of people don't do it, and I don't mind telling people to try it. But instead of fishing off the hump and throwing up onto it, sit up on the hump and throw off of it. That's helped a lot on Smith Lake. And, and we've caught quite a few fish behind guys. And yesterday morning, I was on Smith, and we watched a guy sitting on a hump or sitting around a hump, and he fished all the way around it. And I just told the client, I said, let's just sit here a minute because he'll be done in a second. And when he's done, we'll go over and catch him because he's actually sitting on top of him. We actually sat there and ate a biscuit and waited on him to, to leave. He left, and five minutes, I pulled up on top of the hump, right on top of a hazard marker, actually. And the guy said, well, he was fishing the other way. I said, yeah, but you didn't see him catching anything. Watch this. And 10 minutes later, he had five fish in the boats. And he's like, so the direction makes that big a difference. I said, yeah, that's the way the bait fish move. They move from deep to shallow, not from shallow to deep. And he's like, oh, I said, now if the wind blows, that throws everything off. If there's a wind, if the wind blows, it pushes the shad down. So we have to change tactics and go from top water to say fishing a fluke in eight to 12 feet of water, which is kind of painful for guys, especially guys that like to crank and turn and power fish. But once they see that it works, then they'll do it all the time. Do you, so on a clear water lake like Smith, fishing the way you're talking about, are you looking, are you using your electronics looking for bass, looking for the herring? I mean, the bait fish, what are you looking for? I generally, when I'm scouting for areas, generally I look for those those blue heron schools. And you can find them on there pretty easy. And once you find those blue heron schools, then you drive around just a touch. It, it, I mean, one more loop around, and you can find the bass that are sitting waiting on them. No, when you and say once you're, you, once you, you're finding them on your electronics, you're not busy yes. seeing them schooling on top of the water. Exactly. I, I'm using those electronics to my advantage, which, you know, back in the day, we didn't have that advantage like we do now. I mean, we had electronics. You know, we had flashers, but I, I'd be willing to bet you there's probably only 10 or 15% of the people that fish now that know how to even read a flasher. You know, I grew up reading them, so I, I know how to read them. But now electronics has gotten so more technologically advanced it's made a huge huge difference and that's why you see a lot of younger anglers especially these these guys that are in college now they grew up playing video games they learned how to read that technology and that's why you know some of us old school guys are, are getting our butt kicked because they'll drive down the ledge and find fish on on their sonar turn around and catch them and where we would just fish where we always fished so they, they catch more fish than we do right off the bat just because they're they're using their electronics to their advantage. So that's why I started using mine. I'll actually now, I will go to an area that I've been catching fish and drive around and I'll find them before I even start fishing for them. So that way I'm not wasting 20, 30, 45 minutes of my client's time. I, you know, I, I'd rather drive around the hump, say, but they're not here. The, the bait fish have moved and we'll move to another spot and find them and i'll say okay we'll fish here and we catch fish you know you're not really giving them a boat ride but you're also giving them an education on on how to read their electronics at the same time that's and to me anybody that gets on my boat that's the biggest thing i don't it's not just about catching fish i want them to learn why they're catching them how they're catching them 
and how to make them buy it. And that's that's the biggest key right there. Education that goes along with it. And that's, we had that discussion last week on the show with some other guys, and, and I compared it to me, you know, giving lessons in baseball. I just don't want to show that kid. I want to show his daddy what to look for. I'm, go, I'm only going to be with that kid for, a, for an hour, for two hours. And, and they need to take something away from there that they can reproduce. And, um, exactly. That, you know, it's like I tell clients, I don't want to just tie on a spinnerbait and say, throw it here and you catch fish. I want you to know why I picked the spinnerbait, why I picked that color, and why I picked that area. So when you go back two weeks from now, you can go back to that and you get that knowledge and you use it and you catch more fish from it. That's awesome. That's, that's my favorite part. Knowledge, brother, and uh, greatly appreciate you getting on here and being open and sharing the, the stuff that you know because you've got a lot of stuff going on, you know how to catch fish. So thanks for the update on all the lakes. Uh, you've been fishing. Sounds like it's sounds like it's still a struggle out there a little bit right now, but except on Smith, sounds like it's really good. But the other ones we know are coming soon too. If somebody wants to come and get in the boat with you and not only catch a lot of fish, but but leave there being a whole lot smarter fisherman. Than, than they probably were when they got there. What's the best way to people to get in touch with you, Chris? The best way to do it, you, you can call or text me on my cell phone. It's uh, area code 205-706-2425. Of course, like everybody else, I've got a Facebook page. Uh, you can get me at uh, Captain Chris Jackson, professional angler, on my Facebook page, or they can just type in Chris Jackson. There's there's a picture of me there, so that way they can, they can locate me. That's probably the best two ways. Definitely, if you want to call and leave a message. Uh, but if I'm on a trip, generally, I won't answer the phone. Um, but you can always text me and, and get me pretty quick. I think everybody's texting now anyway. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's the go-to now anyway. Well, man, thank you. We appreciate it, buddy. Thanks for staying on uh, as long as you did today and, and sharing the information with us. And, man, we look forward to having you back on very soon. Be safe out there and look forward to talking to you next time. Definitely. Can't wait. Thanks a lot. All right, Chris. Thanks, man. Man, great segment. Uh, that guy's got some knowledge, huh, Noel? No question about it. He was fun to listen to. Knows his way around the lake, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's what's cool is, is he does fish. You know, a lot of these guys that we have, they'll just predominantly fish Gunnersville or they'll predominantly fish Smith. Or this guy moves around a good bit. And, and so it's really yeah. cool to have somebody on here that, you know, one day he's fishing one way on Smith, another next day he's fishing a totally different way on Gunner. Yeah. Uh, definitely a lot of knowledge. Well, man, let's get into your segment, brother. Let's talk about some, some pond management for a little while. And I know this is that time of year where fertilizing isn't really something that, that's going on as much. Maybe people aren't stocking bluegill right now as much. But liming, it's that time of year, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So typically what we do, Brian, with fertilizing, we fertilize lakes during what we refer to as the, the growing season. And in deep south, uh, in Alabama and Mississippi and Tennessee and Georgia and Louisiana and so forth, it's the very beginning of March all the way through the very end of October. And it's not as much even about temperature as it is about day length. Uh, temperature certainly has a an effect, but obviously you get into late October, early November, and the, the water temp starts to drop. But really, the amount of hours of sunshine drops, and it's just you get into that dormant period of the year. 
And so we kind of shut down fertilizing in November, but it's a great time to lime lakes and liming and fertilization kind of go hand in hand. Whether you're talking about a food plot or a garden or a fishing pond. And in, in a lot of cases, liming is really one of those foundational things, just critically, critically important. And it can have a huge impact on the water quality, certainly the water quality as it relates to fish production, but even on the appearance of the water. And so it's very, very important to test the water, check and see whether you need lime. And if so, this is a great, great time to apply it where you're not disturbing any of the other things that you're doing, namely fertilization, uh, and give that lime time to do its trick, to work, and and be ready to go with your fertilizer next spring. Well, as, as far as knowing when to lime and testing, is that something that you have to take a water sample and send in or get somebody like you to come out there and test for them? Is that, is that kind of how that goes? Yeah, the the simple way to determine lime need is with a, a quick water test. And we perform literally thousands of them every year. And we don't charge for them. Uh, we do them on all of our customer ponds every time. And we'll even, uh, you know, come out and do a water test for you if folks want to reach out to us. Uh, you can actually collect water sample and bring it to us. If you do that, you need to collect it fresh, pull it out of the water, uh, pull it out of the pond, put it in a jar, maybe keep all the air out of the jar, fill it to the very top, screw it down. If it's going to be sitting for any period of time, put it in the refrigerator, keep it cold, and just bring it right to us. It doesn't take but just a few ounces for us to do the test. And we can tell pretty quickly whether you need lime. And then based on our experience for 30-some-odd years of lime in these lakes, around here we can give you a really good idea of how much lime you need to put and we, we typically base that on tons per acre and to a point really you can't put too much okay you can't hurt anything by over liming which is a little different than on crop fields or gardens you can probably over lime but in a pond you cannot and so to a point the more you put the longer it lasts so it's it's a fairly labor-intensive process, makes a little bit of a mess. So, you know, you don't want to lime every single year. You don't want to put a ton per acre per year. You're better off putting three or four or five tons per acre and doing it every three or four or five years. So that's typically what we recommend. So, you know, if you've got a little small small farm pond, you know, a couple acres, um, you probably just, I'm sure that the water's, it would make sense that, that the water sample, no matter where you take it, it's probably going to be the same. If you've got a 15, 20, 25 acre pond, do you need to take samples from different areas of the pond or is it pretty much going to be the same and doesn't matter really where you take it? It's, it's going to be the same no matter where you take it, no matter what depth you take it out of. And here's why. We're not testing pH. So a lot, a lot of times when people talk about lime, acidity, alkalinity, they're thinking of pH. And pH changes. It changes from daylight to dark. Uh, it changes seasonally. Temperature can affect it. 
But what we're actually checking is the total alkalinity of the water. So we're actually measuring the amount of calcium carbonate that's in the water sample. So it really doesn't matter whether you take one sample or go out and take 10 samples and mix them together. You're going to get the same consistent reading in any given day by just taking one, one water sample. And uh, that's one of the nice things about the water test that we do, and it's why we use that test. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So when, when you, you, you said when you started this segment, you know, your fertilizer and your lime kind of go hand in hand. Are you, is your lake really needs lime bad? And you don't know it because you had not tested it. And then you fertilize it in the spring. Are you are you wasting that fertilizer, or are you just not getting as much out of that fertilizer as you could? Yeah, I would say it's definitely the the latter, the second one. In the simplest terms, when we're dealing with a lack of alkalinity, water tends to be less responsive, or fertilization is less efficient. What technically happens is what when we fertilize ponds we're really adding phosphorus. That's the middle number in the formulation of any fertilizer. So the fertilizers that we use for aquatics, for water, for ponds, tend to be really high in phosphorus. The fertilizer we use is 1052-4. So 52% phosphorus. That's really what you're adding to the water. That's the limiting nutrient. In, in cases where there's no alkalinity, there's no buffering in the water, that, that phosphorus tends to sink down to the bottom and get tied up in that acidic bottom mud. And because of the water chemistry and the soil chemistry, that phosphorus is not available in the water column to fertilize or stimulate plankton growth, which is the objective. That's what you're attempting to do when you fertilize ponds. So you can still fertilize, and a lot of times you can over overcome the lack of alkalinity by overwhelming or adding extra fertilizer. And we do that occasionally, but it's certainly not efficient. Okay, so that's the primary impact lack of lime or lack of alkalinity has on fertilization. There's some other benefits associated with liming and raising the alkalinity and the hardness of the water. It just is beneficial in terms of fish production. It benefits. It enhances the water's ability to shed turbidity, total or suspended solids, for example. So it helps keep the water cleaner. So there's, there are other benefits, but the chief benefit that we talk about is how it impacts fertilization. And in cases where there's very limited natural alkalinity or, or total alkalinity, uh, it can be very difficult to get fertilizer to work at all. Certainly a, a cost-effective strategy to enhance the water quality as it relates to fish production, to lime, and then follow it up with fertilization. I can tell you just firsthand from one of my best friends, he has a 17-acre lake, and he fertilized repeatedly and very dissatisfied. He was like, man, I just feel like I'm wasting my money because I'm not seeing much of a change. And if he had done all that, this is one of these do-it-yourself guys that, that should have probably been calling you to start with because he's throwing that money at the fertilizer 
And yeah, he probably was seeing a little bit of benefit, but he was very unhappy with his results he was getting. And then he, he checked and he was like, my goodness, man, I, I need to fertilize bad. I mean, not fertilize, but lime. And so he had the, the late lime. And then he's like, man, it was like a very quick change at that point. He's like, man, my fish started growing. Started seeing a big difference. But he didn't know what he didn't know, right? And uh, so he was yeah, fertilizer and, and had not even thought about checking, you know, the acidity of the water. Yeah, and it does make a huge difference, particularly in most of the deep south. I mean, the e- easiest way to think about it is if you're in an area that grows pine trees real well, then you're in an area that has naturally acidic soil. And, of course, most of the area around us grows pine trees awfully well. And one of the reasons is because the soils are, are ideal. And, and they tend to be acidic. Same thing with, you know, growing azaleas. I mean, the, the, the acidic-type soils, we just don't have a lot of natural alkalinity in our soil. You get over into the black belt, uh, the prairie mud is, is, is chalky. It's very, uh, very alkaline. And so if you, if you have property in those regions, then you, you probably never need to lime. Because what we're really talking about, Brian, is the bottom of the pond. We're not, we're not really affecting directly the water. We're affecting the mud in the bottom of the pond. And then the, the chemical change that occurs down in the mud at the bottom of the pond is what impacts that positive change in the water, the water chemistry. So as a result of that, it is really, really important to cover the entire bottom of the pond with lime. You can't just take lime and dump it in one spot or two spots or ten spots. You can't take limestone and dump it into the mouth of the creek that feeds your pond and expect that it's going to cover the entire bottom of the lake. Uh, limestone is agricultural limestone is, is crushed limestone. It's crushed rock and rock doesn't dissolve very readily in water. You know, over time, water will dissolve about anything. We talk about over years and years, but in order to get the effect, desired effect, We've got to take that crushed limestone and we've got to spread it over the entire pond so that it'll rain down through the water column and sit down on the bottom mud and, 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 and that's where that chemical, that chemical reaction takes place. That's effective liming. So we obviously use a, a barge system. We've got a, several uh, of them, uh, these barges that are capable of holding up to a couple of tons at a time. And we've got big trash pumps on the back of these barges, and and they're and they're powered by outboard motors, and we can drive them around, cut cross uh, transects across the lake, and put out, wash the lime off of the deck of the barge down onto the uh, onto the onto the water surface, where it'll rain down and sit down there on the bottom. So you want it to you want to have that vision, you know, a visual, I guess, would be if you got through liming. And you drain that pond, it'd be white. I mean, it'd look like it snowed out there. Absolutely, I've, I've seen yeah. it. You know, occasionally or uh, unintended. You know, we've had lakes that <clears throat> that drain not long after liming for various reasons, and uh, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, when they're properly limed, it does. It looks just like it was a dusting of snow uh, down there on the bottom. And if you're not seeing that, if you're not accomplishing that, you're not doing a whole heck of a lot of good. You know, over the years, I've seen folks lime with spreader trucks and 
well, I got 50% of it covered or 30% of it covered. Or the biggest thing we hear is, can't we just dump a bunch of lime in the, in the upper end of the lake and let, and let the creek, you know, take it out into the water? And, and it will move a little bit of that material, the real super fine material. Sure, they'll move. But, but you're not, unlike fertilizer, fertilizer is actually dissolving in the water. So you can put fertilizer in in one spot, and in a few hours, it's dispersed. Limestone is rock. It's just sinking right to the bottom. 99% of it is going to be right there where you put it out. And so if you put 99% of it in one spot, that's where it's going to sit for the next five years. Wow. Is limestone, I mean, like somebody's wanting to have this done, is this pretty, is this a pretty reasonable, I mean, compared to fertilizing? Is this, I mean, and, and, and like you said, you're looking at doing this every three to five years. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really need it. Cost effective is it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not bad. It's about the same cost of fertilizing. Uh, it's just that we tend to put three or four or even five years in at one time. So, you know, there's a price tag on it, uh, all up, it's kind of an upfront cost all at once. Whereas fertilizing, you spread out over, uh, several years, you know, over, over, over the growing season. So, but in terms of total cost, what it actually costs to lime, it costs about what it costs to fertilize and, and maybe even a little bit less. It, a lot of it depends on, uh, quite honestly, a lot of it depends on how far you have to, to truck the lime. A lot of time, limestone is not expensive. You can buy quality agricultural lime for, you know, anywhere from $12, $14 a ton, maybe even cheaper in some places. A lot of times it has to do with how far do we have to freight it, how far do we have to truck it. Uh, it's not unusual for the cost of freight nowadays, uh, you know, these triaxial dump trucks to, to cost as much as the material itself, you know, so... But it tends to be about the cost of fertilization, and it is certainly worth the effort to do it in, in terms of how it enhances the water quality and, and grows and grows fish. Well, that's that's encouraging because I honestly thought that it would have been dramatically more just from the labor-intensive standpoint of it. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of an operation. We we dump the we dump a truckload of lime, let's say you know twenty-five, thirty tons, or or 10 truckloads, you know, in a big pile, and we use a loader, you know, a tractor loader or front-end loader or a, a skid steer loader or whatever, and we scoop it up and dump it onto the platform of the barge, nose it up against the bank, dump it on, you know, a ton or two at a time, you know, and it makes a little bit of a mess, you know, and of course we clean it all up, and when we're done, you don't even know we're there. We even uh, scrape the ground clean, put out some fresh grass seed and mulch it up with some good straw and and you never know we were there but it but it's it's not terribly terribly expensive and and we've kind of got it down a little bit to a science now uh as far as uh uh you know the whole operation we've been doing it a long time well and the bottom line is to if you're fertilizing your lake spending that money why not get the most out of that that you can get spend a little bit hundred percent Lime it, yeah, hundred percent. Most out of your fertilizer instead of throwing money at something and, and getting only thirty percent result. Lime the thing and, and and get the most result you can get out of it. It may make sense. No, no doubt about it. I mean, the thing about fertilizing, it is so impactful. And folks that are that are associated with 
lakes that are properly fertilized can tell you exactly what I'm saying. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll agree 100%. But the, the issue with fertilizer is a lot of times, uh, it's not, you know, 50% effective or 60 or 70% effective. It's, it's all or nothing. So, you know, you struggle to get any effect of fertilization. You know, it's minimally effective. And so you're just not getting the benefit out of it. Whereas, like you said, you know, you lime it, you get the alkalinity right. And with the same amount or less fertilizer, you get a hundred percent production. And so it, it's a, it can be a huge difference maker. No question. I, I, like I said a while ago, I, my best friend experienced it firsthand where he like i said a while ago fertilize 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 and just not getting any results until he limed yep. it and then all of a sudden he's like oh my gosh this is a this yeah so i could turn it on a light switch yeah right exactly if you're somebody that is fertilizing your your lake or your pond and and you haven't thought about the liming aspect of it then uh, I, I think you can hear from this podcast and, and, and from norm in this segment that it's crucial and, and that you, you do want to check your water and, and see if it needs lime so that you know that money you're spending on fertilizing is, is, is getting you the results that you intend on it getting. Norman, what's the, uh, what's the best way for these guys to get up with you if they have any questions or, uh, or want you to come out and take a look at the lake? Yeah, really the best way to get me, give out my cell phone number. It's 205. 205-288-1371, and they can call me, leave a message at that number, text message me at that number. Certainly can w- visit our website, get us that way, it's sepond.com. Uh, be happy to talk to, to them about uh, checking their water, seeing if they need lime, and we are liming every day of every week from now till the springtime, so uh, definitely a great time to do it. Uh, get in touch with us, and we'll, we'll get you fixed up. Absolutely. It's that time of the year, guys. Norman, thank you, man. I know you got to run. Uh, thank you for giving us your time today. Great segment. Appreciate you helping me co-host a little bit today as well. And uh, always look forward to hearing from you, brother. All right, Brian. Hey, same here, man. Uh, take care. Have a great day. See you. Bye. All right, guys. Another great show coming to an end. Uh, thanks, Chris and, and Norman both for calling in. And man, you're talking about an episode that's just full of, uh, full of some takeaways and, and knowledge from guys that absolutely know what they're doing in the fishing world, whether it's from catching them or growing them. We, we hit both of them today. And that's going to be a wrap for the week. Please subscribe, rate, and drop us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. If you'd like us to email it to you, just text fishing, text the word fishing to 646-495-9867. And uh, we will send you, get you on our email list with that and send you the podcast each and every week. Appreciate you listening, guys. Tell your friends about us. And hey, look, use this as a tool. It's another tool in your in your tackle box to uh, know what the fish are doing before you go or on the, on the way to the boat ramp. And hopefully it'll make everybody uh, have a more successful trip and, and want to go back even more. So look forward to talking to y'all next week. That's it. We out. Bye. This week's Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report was brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Become a better southern hunter and angler and pick up your copy today wherever fine magazines are sold or save online at greatdaysoutdoors.com.
And also brought to you by Southeastern Pond Management. If you want to grow big fish or healthier fish or just get your lake in better shape, call Southeastern Pond Management. You can call Norman Latona at 205-288-1371 or just look them up, southeasternpondmanagement.com and, and give Norman a call. And brought to you by You Do Outdoors. Check out You Do Outdoors on your app store, Google Play. It's a social media app for whatever you you do outdoors. This episode was brought to you by Brian Sand with National Land Realty. You already trust me with your fishing report, so trust me to help you find or sell that next piece of property as well. Just give me a call at 601-383-2344.